Hi, everybody. Welcome to Podcast Nonsense. This is episode number 13, Lucky 13. I'm your host, Patrick Krebs, and I've got with me Alex Powers. Hi, Patrick. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. You're a comedian or a comedian or how do they... I just call it comic. You just call it comic. I'm a comic. I like that. Yeah. I like that. I hate comedian. Yeah. There's a part of me that wants to say it's sexist. I don't know why that would be sexist. I don't know either, but it's I kind of agree with you. I think it's implying there's some sort of magnificent difference between female comics and male comics. Yeah. But uh, yeah, as a female comic, I'm, I'm very adamant about just referring to myself as a comic. That's great. I like that. Um, so you were talking about... You were talking about this dude that you just started seeing? Oh, this woman I just started seeing. Oh, a woman you just started seeing. Yeah, you okay. didn't know that about I'm me? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, I Wow. Didn't. You know me for like a year, I guess. Yeah. But I guess, uh, yeah, I don't I don't come out and be like, I'm a big dyke, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, but no, yeah, I just started seeing a woman, and she's awesome, and she's like a, an amazing writer, super talented person. So it's been great. I haven't been in a relationship of any kind and like at least not a healthy one in like mm-hmm. four years or something mm. so um yeah this is new i feel like an adult too it's like yeah. super because you know how like lesbians go into things really quick like there's that joke on the second date like what do, br- what do lesbians bring to a second date a u-haul yeah i you have know? i actually have heard that joke um but no this is like really normal <laughs> and um yeah i think everyone has but this is going we're going about it at a really like reasonable normal healthy pace yeah. and i feel like an adult for the, it's so weird because i just turned 28 but for yeah. the first time in my life i feel like a functioning normal member of society that's fantastic <laughs> what makes you feel that way are you is just everything's aligning everything well i have a job <laughs> i have a car i can take care of my dog um i don't know what it was you know i had i had an awakening like probably four months ago where I just I figured out who I was for the first time in my life. You know, I That's just, awesome. knew, yeah, you know, you're, you're a dude, you're a guy. And so like the masculine people in our society have this like huge misunderstanding about what is masculine and what is feminine. Mm-hmm. Masculine is simply the state of doing, you know? And I think a lot of women are far more in touch with their masculine side, you know, and, okay. and, and men as well. But the feminine is the state of being. And mm. I always identified with my state of doing and not my state of being. And when I finally kind of embraced my state of being, my, my masculine side, my state of doing just started to effortlessly reflect that. So that's, that's what's happened in the last four months. I'm feeling, I'm that's like on a stride. Yeah. But that's boring stuff. That's not boring. That's <laughs> <laughs> choking on coffee. That's not boring at all. Well, that's, that's, that's my opener. That's the I've intro. Never, I've never heard that before. Really? From yeah. the, from like a like put, putting the feminine and the masculine in a metaphysical sense, kind yeah, of. Yeah, let's re, wait, let's recap that a little. What was that? The masculine is the doing, state and of doing. The feminine is the being, state of being. And when you think about men, especially like what they earn, what they like, they go to work, they mm-hmm. bring home the butter, or you know, they providing for their families. Like that is very important to a man. And that's because, like, that's the masculine es- essence is the state of doing. But that's why it's so important, in my opinion, for men to get in touch with their feminine side. And by mm-hmm. that, I don't mean they're emotional or sensitive or, you know, that kind of side, the way we think of feminine. Right, but simply right. who they are so that that way their state of doing, their earning can be gratifying and really reflect who they are and be, um, you know, super fulfilling to them. Yeah, that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. I think for the longest time I was stuck in, like, the in the doing. You know, like I'm a very, what we were just talking about, being a workaholic and, mm-hmm. and just like constantly keeping your mind busy and constantly be doing things. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, probably 
probably later than you're figuring out right now. I think it was like older than you when I figured out that I had to kind of know who I was and, and settle with that, you know, right. and kind of like get in touch with that. Right. Um, but damn, yeah, that's powerful. I feel like I've done that in the past like year or two. This has been a big year for yeah. everyone I know. And like I said, like I've known it you really for like has. a year. Everyone I know really like has. has just gotten on this trajectory. Like 2014 going into 2015 has just been a really, you know, huge shift for a lot of people. And, um, you know, I think it's part of the greater paradigm shift that's going on in the country and in the world in general. Mm-hmm. But to see it, you know, amplified and magnified on an individual level with the people um, in my life, certainly, mm-hmm. um, it really gives a lot of credence to like this metaphysical idea that like, yeah, it's the end of an era. It's the book of revelations. The it's the apocalypse, like, you know, it's just things. Yeah. Things are changing, yeah, you know, yeah. rapidly, especially on an individual level. Yeah, they are. I mean, things are, yeah, things are changing everywhere yeah. like across the board. But I, th- I, I had that thought the other night. I thought to myself, I think in this year so far, I mean, we're not even to June mm-hmm. and I think I've done more in this year than I've done in any span of same. like same a decade. Yeah, you know? these these last three months, the first few months of the year, um, have been busier than the last two years of my life combined. Mm-hmm. Well, for obvious reasons. What else are you doing? Um, comedy's going great. Uh, I'm doing a lot of shows. I'm opening up for Carlos Mencia pretty regularly. Whoa. Um, yeah, and starting to really get into a stride of booking better quality, you know, mm-hmm. awesome shows in, in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And as a comic who's been doing it for, I've been doing it seven years, I started back east and was really kind of spoiled back east and was able to work the club circuit up and down the east coast and work a lot in New York um, and get paid to do it. Um, and then coming out here, being in L.A. for two, two and a half years mm-hmm. and it taking, you know, you kind of have to press the reset button when you move out here. And after two, two and a half years, you know, to get back into the stride and get back to where I um kind of was when I left the East Coast has been really gratifying and a huge relief. That's interesting. What did you, where did you perform in the East Coast? um, Oh, I I did a lot of Funny Bones Uh and uh, a couple improvs. Funny Bones are just like a chain. Yeah. Um, Just like improvs, they're pretty much in every major city on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. And I worked a lot in the Mid-Atlantic, you know, being from the Baltimore, D.C. area. I worked Uh a lot in Virginia and Maryland and Pennsylvania and D.C. Sure. Mm. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, I saw that you were from Baltimore. I looked mm. you up and saw that you were from Baltimore. Want to talk about that? I, I, I mean, <laughs> it's a little controversial, you know? Well, but yeah, yeah, definitely. I'd love life. to talk about that. I mean, we, we, I, I don't even know what to say. I mean, when, when like Ferguson and all that stuff was happening and the Eric Garner stuff, um, in New York, in my, in my mind, being from there and knowing, knowing the demographic and, knowing the tension there and also just, you know, always recognizing the low quality, you know, the poor quality of life in the mm-hmm. city, which is predominantly African-American. I, in my head, when all that stuff was going on um, with the cop killing, like the, the cops shooting people and all that stuff, I just was like, when is stuff going to pop off in Baltimore? It's just a matter of time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's one of those, pl- it's one of those places. I mean, I think I joke with people about the wire because the wire is like so dead on, like Baltimore, um, my yeah. cousin. My cousin went to school in Baltimore. I I grew up in D.C., so I I'm familiar with Baltimore too. And it's just like it's shocking how accurate some of that stuff is. Mm-hmm. And you, I mean, you drive into Baltimore and you see those row houses that are boarded up. Like the oh, doors yeah. and the windows of the row houses are oh, yeah. plywood. Yeah. 
you know, and who knows what's going on in there or, you know. Trap houses. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, and that's what's funny is that, like, the rest of the country, you know, they want to refer to all the looters as, like, oh, the criminals, the drug dealers. The truth is the drug dealers, you know, I mean, it's a huge aspect of Baltimore's economy is, like, heroin and and the hard drugs, the hard drug trafficking, the the drug dealers um, are pissed off about the rioting and the looting because it's you know it's effing up commerce. Right, right. Seriously. Well, I mean that's that's something that did you ever read Freakonomics? Uh, no. That's one of the things they talk about in Freakonomics was uh, he he has a PhD like candidate for, as an economist like sat down with this guy that was a mathematician that had been studying accidentally been studying. Um, the books of this drug dealer that I think, I don't know if it was in Baltimore or if it was somewhere else, but uh, this guy had gone to business school and had come back home and it was more profitable to be a drug dealer than it was to do anything else. So he ran it like a business and he like kept books and it was the first time that they had like hard data, that a mathematician had hard data. I'm sure the DEA and the FBI loved that. Well, I mean, it wasn't until like later, you know, the, he like he had to negotiate like all this confidentiality with that stuff. But he, um, yeah, I mean, you, like you're right. The, these people, it's, I don't know, it's pervasive. I just can't believe the National Guard has been called in and all that stuff. Um, and, and people, people in the rest of the country, like I said, uh, they don't understand it. And, um, you know, they hear, I hear things said like, oh, there's no excuse for that. And it's true. It's not like a Katrina situation where people actually had a reasonable, like they had reasons for looting, you know, like I need to steal this flat screen TV to barter my way out of new Orleans. You know, like there were actually legitimate motives behind looting in that situation, but people don't understand this. And all I can say is the quality of life was already so messed up there you know this is generational frustration and yeah. anger that's just been suppressed and when people start getting killed and no one's held accountable like your city's good your city's vulnerable to be burned to the ground yeah you know yeah. people people get pissed yeah you know yeah i mean have you ever seen hairspray john waters yeah i mean racial tensions in baltimore have always been a thing and when you look I, I, everywhere in Maryland, they've been a th- you know like Annapolis was big right. in the in the '60s with the civil rights. Uh, they rioted. You know, DC has always been. Yeah. I I was joking with my sister. I said that you know you've got like you you basically got like a unified army right now in Baltimore. And if those people like organized and marched south and like unified with the disenfranchised people in DC, yeah, they'd be in the capital with a million people. Well, and and, that's and they could just sit on the steps of the Capitol and just wait it out. Totally. You know, you've got like a million people that like nobody's working. Nobody's got anything to do. Yeah. You know? And they yeah. can just like walk down to the Capitol. It would take like three hours to walk to the Capitol from Baltimore. <laughs> and just like sit on the steps. Yeah. You know? But yeah, I mean, this is. It's. um. It's scary. Yeah. And it's, and it's interesting to look at it historically. Like why. Why is it so tense? Why has tension always like presented itself there throughout the civil rights movement in the past, you know, decades and centuries? And it's, mm-hmm. it's all, um, it's all, uh, you know, suppressed Confederates, Confederate um, loyalty. You know, uh, Maryland is below the Mason-Dixon line, as I'm sure you're aware, mm-hmm. but it's not a southern state. It's mm-hmm. it's geographically, I guess, a southern state. Um, New Englanders, I guess, consider it a southern state, but Virginians sure as hell don't. Right. Um, and the reason <laughs> being is, uh, 
you know, Lincoln sent troops to Annapolis to prevent Marylanders from signing up for the Confederacy. It most certainly would have been a Confederate state. So you have this weird suppressed racism that just never, and when you go down South, like you go even, you know, just, just as far as Virginia, um, it's not uncommon to drive around in rural, you know, Virginia and see an old black man sitting on his porch in a rocking chair with a Confederate flag hanging. You know, the, the racism down South kind of, um, <laughs> This is kind of controversial. I mean it. I don't mean it to be offensive, but it it can almost take this kind of charming tone, you know. Like when, when you see a black man sitting on his porch in a rocking it's chair bizarre, with a Confederate yeah. flag, you yeah. know, hanging. There's just something like, like racism is was so institutionalized down south that I feel like it's um, I'd like to think that it's on its last legs, you know. Like it's it's, it, it was a, I can't think of a good like a good uh, parallel or or example of what I'm talking about. But um, I don't know. It, it worked for a little bit, <laughs> for lack of a better term. Like, it just seemed to kind of be experienced on a level where then, then it could be gotten over. Well, Maryland, I, don't, I mean, like, I, I don't know if I can agree with that. I, I, most I, people I don't know would, if I can agree with I that. Mean, but I yeah, mean, like, lynching it, is still it, a huge problem down I, f- I feel like I feel like it's more a symptom of, um, I think it's it's unknowable for people like you and me. And I think it's a symptom of uh, a level of subjugation that like has not been felt by us, you know? And it's one of those things where, you know, if you are an African American guy sitting on his porch with a Confederate flag, you might be doing, you might be flying the Confederate flag to like remain safe. That's very true. You know, totally. And I think that that is, that goes back to the Baltimore thing where you've got a population of people in Baltimore that are essentially, essentially so subjugated and so like have had violence perpetrated on them so often that, Mm. you know, this is, this is the only language that's understood at that point. You know, when you get beaten by the cops over and over and over again, you learn that the only, the only, action that matters in your life is violence right and you're dealing with a police department and you know a political leadership that's so corrupt and has been for so long yeah i wanted to start my friend was trying to start a hashtag after the whole baltimore riots popped off being like hashtag what would sheila dixon do and i don't know if you're familiar with her but she was the mayor i guess like two mayors ago and got involved in a scandal where she was like stealing money misappropriating funds Mm -hmm. from i guess campaign funds or i guess Whatever, but it was this big, this big deal, and and yeah, like that kind of corruption, um, and especially within the police department, has been so prevalent and in the news and like in mm-hmm. the public eye for however many decades anyway. Yeah. So you know, there's just a complete and t- total distrust yeah. um, between the citizens of Baltimore and everyone else, um, and then you know, of course, it's surrounded by this rich, wealthy, affluent white you know predominantly white um kind of old money you know that's what's shocking about that's what's shocking about baltimore is if you drive through like the the scariest place you've ever seen yeah for like 25 blocks and then you go come into green grass areas where there are like old manor houses that are enormous old victorian and like tudor houses yeah, yeah yeah um and it's yeah and you're right you can go two blocks south of that neighborhood and you can be on the, one of the most dangerous roads in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, thank you for, thank you for reeling me, me back. I, 
yeah, as, as white people, and of course I have my own, I'm not white, you know, like I am very adamant. I'm like, I'm not, people are like, yeah, you're white. I'm like, what? Excuse me? No, no, I'm not white. White people don't come out of the vagina with this hair, you know, just, I don't know, I don't know who my father is, you know, I've had every hairstylist I've ever had has been like, yeah, girl, you might, you might want to find out who you daddy is because, you know, you might be black, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, you're right. Like it's, I, I, I certainly don't understand, um, the inner workings of racism from that perspective perspective down south but i can say uh as someone that grew up in a white family in a predominantly white county with all white people um the racism on on the on the part of of white folks in in a place like baltimore and surrounding areas is totally suppressed and to the point where it takes this like really malicious malevolent tone and it's very backhanded and I guess I guess that's what I was trying to say was the big difference between racism in the South and racism in Baltimore. Racism in the South has always been very overt, you know, oh, yeah, to, yeah, to the yeah. point of being fatal, yeah. even, and to the point of being violent and, um, yeah. you know, really, really terrifying. And in, in Baltimore, it kind of just takes this really gross, verbal, uh, behind the back kind of thing. Yeah. And um, well, that's why this, I left. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Honestly. Yeah. I mean, well, we're in this place now too where. Um, you know, the, like everybody sees everything and everybody reads everything and everybody hears everything. And it's just for so long, um, for so long, you, you, you see media reports of like people that's their, <laughs> that's the biggest gripe right now with the Baltimore stuff is that like the media is playing shots of people looting. Right. And it's 5% of these riots. And they did the same thing in Katrina. Yeah. Yeah. They're showing all the bad stuff, but they're not showing like the couple of days of sit-ins or right. they're showing like calm and organized people like holding hands and standing in front of storefronts and stuff like that. You right. Know? And that's all the part part of like the systematic racism that's perpetuated by the media mm-hmm. media in this country. And it's weird because when we first started talking during the podcast, I think I mentioned something or said something to the effect of, um, you know, things are really changing. We're in a huge paradigm shift and it's so hard to say that and people not look at you like you're crazy because that's what they're seeing on the news. Like, what do you mean it's not yeah. changing? And it's like, no, it is because we're getting sick of it. You're right. Like we're living in such a transparent, those of us that have our eyes open and are actively seeking for solution and actively seeking to understand the deeper, you know, structures of oppression that are at work here that present themselves in the way of racism and sexism in this country, the mm-hmm. things that have plagued this country for centuries. Those of us who are looking at the, looking for those things to stare at them in the eye and confront them, you know, we can see that no, 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 like a lot of this is propaganda and there definitely is an aspect, um, you know, to, to the media and the way it reports these issues that is completely racist, mm-hmm. um, and meant to perpetuate stereotypes against black people and against minorities. Mm-hmm. Um, but at least we can see that, you know, absolutely things are changing because we're getting sick of it. You know, we're getting pissed. There's schisms happening on Facebook yeah, yeah. and that seems so trivial, but I mean, I mean it, I mean it in terms of like, er- like everything that's going on globally right now. Like people, I was um, at a Shabbat dinner last night and uh, religion well, at first Judaism, you know, was brought up we just having an academic talk about what we had just done and what we had just celebrated. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course that, you know, we started to talk a little bit about like, we're on the verge of a crusade right now. And it's like, no, we're the furthest away as a human race from a crusade that we've ever been. We just, the, the, the spin the media puts on it though is completely contrary to that though. Yeah. You know, like even with gun violence, gun violence is down like 20 per like 
it's it's at the lowest rate it has been in the last 20 years yeah from what i understand yeah you wouldn't know that from from watching the news as soon as there's a gun shooting or any kind of gun violence or any yeah. kind of like you know mass killing like it's like this huge problem it's it things are actually getting better we just live in such a you know a technology oriented world that everything's so transparent we find out about everything and then it's replayed and repeated over and over again on the news like a loop and um it just creates this perception in our minds that wow man things are fucked up yeah and they're yeah. not getting better they're getting worse but i don't believe that's the case i have to have a little faith too that that's that's not true. It's, you know, it's not the case. And I did like a year ago, I got rid of my cable and I stopped watching TV. I still watch TV. I still watch Game of Thrones and stuff like that. But, yeah. you know, it's like targeted watching. You know, you get rid of all of that background noise that you have when you have cable or you have TV and the TV's just on in the background mm -hmm. as like a substitute for what you would be doing, which is like reading or communicating with people or like be getting bored and going outside or like going to the gym. You know, with that TV just blasting constantly, it just reinforces that stuff. So if you're like if you're out there and you're listening to this and you're and you're not happy and you think the world is like a grim, right. barren, bad place headed for like disaster, turn off your TV for the next month. Walk outside and actually have some human interactions and find out how friendly people are and how I mean, granted, hopefully you live in a nice neighborhood. I, I don't know. I just when I'm not watching the news, my entire perception of the world changes. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I live in a nice neighborhood, but I also, because I live in LA and there's so many different kinds of neighborhoods, like within walking distance of where I am, I, I just, I don't know. I'm, um, I'm a lot of times I'm overwhelmed with how friendly and decent, uh, humanity is, mm -hmm. um, and loving and compassionate, compassionate and all that. Mm -hmm. And, um, I feel very fortunate, especially to live in a place like Los Angeles that's yeah. so diverse and so tolerant. Yeah. I don't even want to be white. Like I said. I, f I feel like it's not even cool to be white here. I want to fit in. I want, can I be like, I just want to be some kind of be, brown. I think you can be whatever you want. And, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, I put my hair down. I'm, 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 I'm Armenian instantly. <laughs> well, that's very controversial lately too, right? Obama didn't recognize the Armenian genocide. Yeah. And here in, I don't know if the rest of the country got to hear this, but we had to hear about this for about a week and a half. Was uh, people were flying flags and honking their horns. I now know I will never forget what the Armenian flag looks like. Yeah, yeah. I know now <laughs> what colors it is. I know because and this is the funny thing about Armenians in Los Angeles. Um, wow, they drive nice cars. I didn't see a single car with yeah. an Armenian flag on it that wasn't a Mercedes or a Maserati right. or a BMW. And I was like, damn, like, what are these Armenians, Armenians getting these cars? Like, yeah. what do they do? Yeah. Um, yeah. Like on the out, it seemed like a very, I, I think it's just, um, I think it's just a cultural thing. You know, they're mm -hmm. like nice things. Yeah. It's like a certain level of like class, like old world classiness or something like that. Yeah. Um, even my friend Sonia, she's, she's Armenian. She works in a pot shop. She like she's a pot girl. She uh -huh. sells pot, and like she pulled up to my she pulled up to my house one day in like this awesome, brand new freaking like exotic Nissan, and I was like, I was like, what? And she's like, I'm leasing it, girl. Girl, I just I need it. I need this car. I was like, all right, pot girl. <laughs> like her pot selling is paying for a luxury Nissan. That's okay, an that's whatever. another thing about California that's great, right? Is these is the pot shops everywhere. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I guess. I mean, I, mean I, I haven't smoked pot in like a year. I, I stopped smoking a year, a little over a year ago. But um, 
Yeah, back then it was very convenient. Yeah. yeah. And it's like you walk in and it's like, what what do you want? Are you looking to are you looking to write? Are you looking to like zone out? You wanna watch Game of Thrones? Like I feel you need like- to do some cleaning. And I'm like, Oh man, I need to do all those things. Be like you know, they have like a different kind of marijuana for each kind of thing you want to do. Yeah. And then they probably even have one that, you know, okay, well, first you're going to zone out and then you're going to want to write half an hour into it and then you're going to clean. It's yeah. like, <laughs> really? What's that pot called? <laughs> give me give me that kind of pot. It's just like ridiculous, man. How many kinds of pot there is. It worked though, man. I used to go in there and I used to be like, I need to clean the house. Yeah. You know, and yeah. they, would, they would give you something and you would. I have a. You'd come out of your fog, and the house would be clean. In the names, yeah, like yo, yo, this shit's called clean house. You know, you gonna smoke it and then clean your house. Blueberry cleans. Right. Um. In the names, man, the names are ridiculous. Like, I have a friend staying in town with me. She's a comic from Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, we've just been having a blast talking about what's going on back there. Uh, because you know I haven't been back in over a year, but um, she just arrived to town recently, and she's like. Yo, I'm so glad I'm not there right now when all that shit's popping off. Yeah. And uh, she's a heavy pot smoker, smokes a lot of weed. And she's staying with me, and I'm, I'm going in and out of my bathroom one day, like just getting cleaned up, brushing my teeth, putting on makeup, whatever. And she's sitting on the chair, like outside of my bathroom. And it's like she's facing my bed. My dog's sitting on the end of the bed, and she's like sitting in the chair, and they're just like looking at each other, right? I come in and out of the bathroom like six times, and she's there, like in the same position, like literally staring at my dog, just like like smiling at my dog. My dog and my friend are smiling at each other. <laughs> and finally, after 15 minutes of walking in and out of this bathroom and her literally not moving an inch, like this is what she looks like. That's what she looked like, Patrick. I literally go, I go, are you stoned? And she doesn't even look at me. She goes, huh, yeah. And I was like, Jesus, man. Like that. She was like, she's like, that, that make, cause I don't smoke anymore. She's like, does that piss you off? And I was like, no, man, I forgot how awesome pot was. Like, I just was reminded about like, I want to, I kind of want to smoke some weed and just sit out and smile at my dog. That does, it kind of does the opposite for me. I mean, I'll go for like, I'll go, we've got three, like three pot shops around here within like a four block radius and I'll go for a run, you know, and I'll come back, you know, and I've been running for like four or five, four or five miles. And, um, I'm, I'm just like watching people walk, walk in and out of these shops, you know? And, uh, some of these people I'm looking at and I'm like, I'm, I'm glad that they're smoking weed. Yeah. I'm glad that they're smoking weed and they're staying in their apartments and they're not like getting rowdy. Right. They're not like causing trouble. And, you know, hey, if that's what you do, you know, more power what to you. More power to you, man. I, and I asked her, I was like, what kind of weed? Well, what's the strain? She yeah. was like, huh, it's this shit called American Dream. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. Are you, are you look like you're American Dream? She's like, actually, I am. I'm just sitting here right now thinking about how good my life is. <laughs> and I was like, oh, like whatever the name of the pot is, like that yeah. is literally what you're going to do. Yeah. Yeah. You know, blueberry pancake. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go eat some. I'm going to go make some blueberry pancakes. Like, it's, it's true. crazy. It's true. Oh, man. I'm so, I'm so glad I don't smoke anymore, to be honest. Oh, my God. Me, too. I can't imagine. Like, I had no idea how much how much I wasn't doing. I and I had same and I had no idea how much anxiety I had. I thought it was helping my anxiety. I didn't realize it was making my anxiety worse because really? when I didn't smoke, I'd be like freaking out. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. Oh, good times though. It's nice to be calm. Yeah, it's really nice to be, really calm. Nice to be calm. You know what else is nice? Waking up at like nine six in the morning. I was gonna say nine. Yeah. Yeah. Let's turn that six upside down. <laughs> right. Not like nine is nine is about the latest. Yeah. 
and it's um but no i mean you're right it's nice Seven thirty, eight o'clock sometimes is as early as i get up mm-hmm. that's awesome i yeah. love starting my day it's weird i used to like sleep constantly sleep all the time and now I, I can only sleep like maybe five hours at a clip six hours and then i just naturally pop up really it's amazing um i have that it's a problem for me because we'll go to bed at like 10 or ten thirty, and i'll wake up at like three four in the morning yeah and i'm like good to go I actually relate to that. I really do. Yeah, yeah and sometimes weird. I'll like get up at three thirty and I'll work on something for two hours, and then I'll go back to sleep. I'll take a nap. You know, that's actually um, a very common thing, and it's only th- I think it's really only been in you know recent human history that we don't sleep on a polymorphic sleep schedule, and that's what it's referred to—a polymorphic s- sleep schedule. Um, you know, there was a time and place in in the Western world where it was, uh, and I'm sure you know not the Western world either, where. Um, it was typical to, to sleep for a few hours, wake up, do something in the way of like pray, mm-hmm. um, write, do whatever, start a fire because it was cold, like shit that was pertinent to survival or yeah. pertinent to one and, and then go back to sleep uh, for a few more hours before the sun came up. Yeah. That was typical. And when I think back like evo- like in terms of evolution, you know, the call, the, what could be the cause, the biological cause of that. It's like, well, yeah, natural predators in the middle of the night. Um, so yeah, it's, there's, there's been some people that study sleep patterns. I don't know what kind of doctor that is. I guess a psychiatrist, I don't, whatever, um, that have, that have come out and said, yeah, no, it's really actually not normal. Like we're not intended to sleep for eight hours at like at a time. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you wake up in the middle of the night do some read, pray, whatever, go back to bed for a few hours. Yeah. When it happens, I have this low grade being tired feeling, you know? But it's generally like I I don't know I do, being well rested is so so like foreign to me so I just huh. don't even you know I used to get these headaches when I was little and like I just got used to headaches you know wow and so it's just you that know it's sucks that, that like midpoint that sucks of man. I'm always like on edge. Like, I'm like, I'm like listening. So, yeah, yeah. I'm like listening to you tell me this, and like I'm like listening. I'm like, uh huh, uh huh. But then there's a part of me that's like, wait a second, that's fucked up. Yeah. How old were you when you started getting these headaches? Uh, I used to get headaches all the time. Um, probably around like seven or eight. That's stupid. Know? And all the way through, you know, being like, uh, like sixteen, seventeen, something like wow. that. Wow. So basically, you turned like thirty when you were I was, like. I little. used to joke. I mean, it's like, how do you even talk about that? I used to say I had a, like a like a really low threshold for like head movement, you know, like if I moved my head too fat, like I was always on the verge of that headache, you know? Wow. So if anything, like if I moved or no roller too fast or something like that, it did, like it would, it would pop up. I don't know what that was, man. It's gone away though. Wow. Yeah. That's one of but the so that's most bizarre things I've ever heard. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> that's right. But that's where I am with sleep. You know, it's like so normal to like be, to be about, you know, like 85% awake mm-hmm. and present mm-hmm. at all times, but like never really above 85%. Oh, I was, I mean, you saw me when I walked in, I was running a little late cause I've started seeing someone and I'm not getting as much, I'm going to bed later and mm. sleeping in with this lady as much as I can. And so I show up and I'm like, you know, my brain's really not, it's like half turned on. And so in my mind, I'm like, yeah, let's talk about racism. That's a great topic to start <laughs> to start off with, you know, when I'm not even really awake yet. Like, I'm just kind of, I feel I feel awake now. But um, 
It was inevitable. You're from Baltimore. Baltimore's rioting. Let's hit the racism hard. <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> it is a topic that's close to my heart. It really is. Because um, I don't, I don't, it's not something I've ever understood. But I feel like you had me on, you know, because you're like, oh, yeah, she'll be great to have on. She's a comedian. I know that when we're not doing the podcast and we're, we're hanging out or we run into each other, you know, we, we always talk about movies uh-huh. and documentaries. You're like my go-to when I know want to know what a good documentary is I should watch. I just ask you. I'm like, hey, awesome. what's, what Thanks. have you seen Thanks. recently, you know? Yeah. So I feel like, you know, you, you had me on as like an opportunity to bring some comic relief into this and uh, <sighs> the racism, you know, <laughs> just kind of stifled me. It doesn't but, matter. I mean, you shouldn't feel pressure to be funny or anything like that. You, you know, know thank just, God, because I'm really not that funny. That's what the podcast is. It's just like two people talking and having a conversation. I'm really and so far. I'm glad. This is a great conversation. Great. Yeah. No, I'm yeah. And, and I'm really not. that. I mean, I'm a good writer. I'm a good joke writer. But mm-hmm. candidly, I don't. I don't even consider myself funny anymore. There was a time. There was a time. And then what <laughs> happened was I, I started doing stand-up, and then I proved myself wrong. I st- I think I got well, less I feel, funny. Tell me what that's like, because I know for me, I had a friend uh, when I started out in visual effects. I was in school, and we came out to California to visit with some people, and he was working. He had worked at Digital Domain. He had done some movies and stuff. And he said to me, he's like, "Is it sure? are you sure this is something you want to do? And I was like, yeah, you know, like I'm going to school and spend all this money. I definitely want to do this. I've wanted to do this my whole life. And he goes, you know, when you do it, it's going to be, be a job. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, it didn't mean much to me at the time, but then like I started doing it and like, it's a job, you know, it's like something I enjoyed doing when I was at home, but now I have to be in the office to do it. And when I get home after doing it all day, I definitely don't want to do more of it. Right. You know, so like with comedy, if you're a funny person, and you're like constantly going through funny material and you're going on stage all the time mm-hmm. and like spending your funny material. Yeah. Does that suck the funny out of real life? No, I, 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 <laughs> no. I think I think I think the truth is, is that I'm just, you know, naturally a serious person, to okay. be honest with you. I think I'm just a very I'm a very like um, I mean, I'm very spiritual and I, I'm very in- intuitive and I'm totally into like magic and, and metaphysics and mm-hmm. stuff like that but i'm also a very analytical you know logical person um and i'm i'm serious man i was i hate to be like a like a drag but i'm a serious i'm a serious dude mm-hmm. you know um but i the cool thing about stand-up is that like you know it's not just performing that's just one facet okay. of what you're doing you know so it's like and you also, you can't, you know, it's not like waking up and I got to go to work and get on stage and be funny. It's not like I, I am cued. It's not like I have to be funny, like, all day. The best part about stand-up is that I'm only on stage, like, for however many minutes mm-hmm. or hours, you know, a night. And sometimes not even every night, um, although I should be. But, so my days are really just appropriated like yeah like experiencing the joy and the funny in the world and writing it down Mm -hmm. and observing and experiencing it for myself so it's super fun i I don't get tired i've never in seven years i've never gotten tired of performing because i don't think as a comic unless you're like you know at this really big level where you're literally on tour and like performing every night Mm -hmm. um as a comic i've never gotten burned out of performing because i can't i can't there's not enough hours in a day that could that i could possibly use up you know, to being on stage. Oh, that's fantastic. I mean, I Jones to get on stage every night, Yeah, you know? So it's cool. I like having fun during the day. I have, and I work production during, you know, that's like my day job. Yeah. So there's plenty of like weird shit that goes on. 
<laughs> that I that I have to laugh about so I don't so I don't you know go crazy yeah because like the production company I work for works almost exclusively with like yogis and holistic people really? and like spiritualists essentially and these people let me tell you Patrick they're like the biggest fucking divas and uh, it's like wait a second aren't you supposed to be a yogi like didn't you just aren't you like didn't you just align your chakras over there because you, you needed 10 minutes to align your chakras so yeah. we like stopped you know, and they're just, I don't know, the dichotomy. It's the dichotomy of, of L.A. I went to the, uh, what is it, the, like the Shambhala like, Meditation Center or something mm. in Eagle Rock one, one time. To How do, was like, it? A group meditation thing. It was, it was okay. You know, it's just, uh, just different people in a room and you meditate. It's like yoga, but nobody's moving. Yeah. You know, you've got that like That sounds like the best kind of yoga. And they, uh, they made us watch this video. And you're talking about yogi, yogis being divas. And they made us watch this video, which is this, uh, I forget what her name is. But she's a really high up Buddhist monk. Mm -hmm. She's famous. My sister gave me a book by her. Mm -hmm. She's like really famous high up Buddhist monk. And um, for the first, the, the video must have been like half an hour, 40, 40 minutes long. But for like 20 minutes of the video, she's talking about this experience that she had where somebody's talking where somebody uh, like another Buddhist monk was talking to her and they're interacting with her where she lives. And she was just like livid, angry, wow. like livid, angry and how she had to like step down from the anger and like go to the river and like sit down by the river and stuff. But like she went before she talked about the solution, she went on for like 15 minutes about being angry and why she was angry. And I was just like, Man, this woman doesn't know any more than I do about this stuff. Right? <laughs> like she's got, she's Dude, got, seriously. she's got nothing on anybody. We, we just shot a yoga video, you know, um, earlier in the week for work, and uh, one of the yogis. And that's the thing. It's like, I guess they they have a practice, they have a spiritual practice that um, they utilize to get more in touch with you know, their bodies and their chakras and aligning everything and being connected and being connected to the earth mm -hmm. and being connected to the sky and like whatever. I, I, I can't speak in that. I don't have that vernacular, <laughs> but it's like, yeah, no, you, you do that. Cause you need it. You know, like, like you're, yeah. you're on this spiritual, I, in my experience, most people don't just willingly get on a spiritual path, uh, except for the people <laughs> that need it. Uh, right, right. Seriously, like, no, yeah, you're fucked up. You yeah. need to be doing yoga every yeah. day because yeah. <laughs> if you didn't, you know, you'd be that embolism pop, you know, that vein popping out of your head. Right. I can see it. Right. I can see it. And they do this thing. Uh, so we're filming this this girl, this yogi, and she keeps messing up these lines. And she's like, I'm sorry. And so, so you know, she collects herself. She closes her eyes and tries to do it. And it's like, no, like, you're just... You're not screaming, but I can I can hear you screaming inside your head. You know, like, just because you're closing your eyes and trying to act serene, right, like right. you're you're really you're you're dealing with the same anger and the same, you know, just raw, livid, you know, energy. Animal, that, the animal yes, inside. You know, and that like all of us there. do. You know, yeah. and and I don't know what closing your eyes and fucking taking a few deep breaths, whatever uh, that that works. Okay, I don't believe you though. <laughs> Because <laughs> after that, she just kept messing up her lines and being like, you know, I don't feel good about this because we were running behind schedule. And we were like, we really want to bang this out. How do you feel about that? She's like, you know, I'm just my energy is just so off. And and I just I don't feel like it's really 
conveying well and, and presenting it. So I don't feel like it's going to prevail through through this. I'd rather just pick up and start tomorrow. And it's like, yep, yeah, okay. Yeah, That's not our fault. Who's paying for it? Is she paying for it? Oh, yeah. yeah well, let her come back tomorrow. Yeah, yes. <laughs> who's the production company? You want to know? Yeah. Oh, God, I don't want to talk about oh, it. Oh, okay. I, I, don't I don't want to say, say that. I don't want to say because I basically just shit talk yogis. Yeah, but, uh, no, don't then. Don't then. Yeah. Don't. Um, I was just curious because, uh, like Jordan wants to, she's talked about doing, um, like prenatal, prenatal yoga videos, you know, cause she does a lot of yoga, yoga and she's like, I think certified in the prenatal we, yoga. Uh, that's awesome. Um, that's like a niche. Yeah. I don't know anything. No, about that's it. a, that's a, that's a good niche. I feel like that is too yoga as acupuncturist that works specifically to get, help people quit smoking is to. Mm-hmm acupuncture um that's a good little niche there oh that's a big one yeah 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 there's uh, there's some acupuncturists that, like they poke needles in your ears and sh- uh, that's supposed <laughs> to help you quit smoking i guess um don't know why yeah. <laughs> but uh what was i gonna say right, though every time you put a cigarette in your mouth i'm gonna hit you in the face with this bat we'll yeah you, you know that that actually you know speaking of of because sub- you know i'm sober and um you know, you, you know that. And it's funny because there is, there is a way that different kinds of people deal with getting people sober. Like if you're in a gang, cause we're, you know, we're talking about Baltimore and we're talking mm-hmm. about, you know, these, the different demographics in, you know, across America and, you know, in, in the inner city with, uh, you know, especially minorities, like if you're fucked up on drugs, like a bunch of your boys, like a bunch of your homies are going to beat the fuck out of you. And that's actually a very common method to get people sober. Is, is it really? Literally like, this is like a, this is a gang thing. Absolutely. I've never heard yeah. this. Yeah. Like if, if, if one of your, if one of the members or one of your, one of your brothers, whatever, mm-hmm. whatever, you know, affectionate term you have for them is, is having, you know, a drug problem. They will beat the fuck out of you. Yeah. Yeah. And they'll like leave you on a curb. And hope that they'll try to beat the sober into you, essentially. Yeah. So uh, maybe there is some credence to go going and getting your ears poked to yeah. quit smoking. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, whatever works for people, you know, you just stop smoking. I heard this hilarious. Oh my god, my <laughs> friend, my friend Tracy McDonald. Yeah, you could just quit smoking. Um, good point, I guess. Uh, I've tried. Didn't Did you smoke? Do you smoke cigarettes? I smoke cigarettes. You still do. I still do, but I did quit at one point in time. I quit for a year and a half, and it was because I just quit smoking. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I just decided to stop, and it was actually one of the easiest things I ever did. The only reason I started uh, smoking again is because I started working with children. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, no, I, I tried to quit like a month and a half ago, and I picked a date like 90 days in advance. Did you I, say you just started smoking again because you were working with children? No, that was years ago, but I quit for like a year and a half and then started smoking again. Okay. Um, so I've been, you know, I've been, that was like five or six years ago, but I tried to quit like a month and a half ago and it didn't take unsuccessfully. I, I, uh, I picked a date. I was mentally prepared. I picked the day before my birthday, uh-huh. March 6th, and, uh, and, you know, about 90 days in advance, I was like, all right, this is the day I'm going to quit, and just kept thinking about that and focusing on it, and I quit and didn't smoke for, like, five days, and it was actually extremely easy, and I had, like, no symptoms of nicotine withdrawal. I was, mm. like, totally on board, totally in it, and then something happened unexpectedly that just brought up a lot of emotions, and I felt like I was I was super angry and super scared and felt like I was going to punch walls, so I just started smoking again. Yeah. Um, 
but I wanted to tell you this story. This is hilarious. My friend Tracy McDonald, she's a very, very funny uh, comic, and uh, she's Canadian, but lives out here in, in L.A., and she does this great joke about, uh, you know, she her ex, like, pissed her off, and, um, you know, he's, he was a bigger guy and kind of gross, and, and she decided to take, like, a voodoo doll of him and poke him with needles, mm-hmm. you know, like they do in voodoo. And then she said, like, I saw him three weeks later and he had, like, lost weight and he was looking great. Like, turns out I was giving him acupuncture the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's good. But, that yeah, that's, a great joke. that's what I think of now when I think of acupuncture. That's funny. Um, the smoking thing, I smoked for a while. Really? Yeah, I smoked for a while. I've, got, I've gone on bouts. I think when I, was, uh, like when I was in grad school, I smoked for a while. I was working on my thesis. I can I can I imagine. St- I studied abroad, and when I studied abroad, I smoked for a while because um, you're either smoking your cigarettes or somebody else's when you're in Europe. Yeah, you know everybody's smoking. Yeah, and um, I think like each time, each time I quit, and then uh, you know like two years ago, I smoked for a while, probably like five or six months, and then um, just stopped. I just yeah. I couldn't do it anymore. I always have, you know, it does it for me running. Really? Yeah, because if you, I have that obsessive, I have that obsessive mind. So right. when I start running, you know, it's hard for like a week or two to get like a pace and to get a distance and right. stuff like that. And then if you're looking at the, like, if you're looking at the numbers, like you want to do better. You right. want to do better obsessively the same way you want to do better, like the same way like smoking is an obsession, you know? Right. So if you, uh, it's one or the other. Yeah. You know, you're not smoking and going for a run. When I, when I had my five day pause, I was playing a lot of tennis and I did, I, yeah. and I, listen, I hate running. Like I was yeah. a collegiate athlete, yeah. you know? Um, so I, I, I trained my whole life. I yeah. was always training for, for my sport. And so I really developed an intense aversion to, mm-hmm. to most physical exercise, but specifically running. Cause I just hate long distance running. It's painful yeah. for me. Yeah. Um, but when I had my five day pause, I was playing tennis and yeah, I had these random compulsions to run and i was like where the fuck is that coming from hell no I don't, I, we ain't doing that no yeah um yeah. but yeah it just i just was like i feel like i want to go for a run <laughs> i yeah. kept talking myself out of it maybe i should have yeah maybe just give it a try i i did too i mean like i played um i played soccer for a while and i played lacrosse in high school and i was midfield so i was just running all oh, the yeah. time and i hate running oh that's right you're from dc of yeah. course you played lacrosse yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and my knees are like beat to hell yeah. Oh, that. yeah. So like it it hurts. Totally. And, My knees are uh, so effed up. But I mean, I, I, it's it's mental for me. You know, it's like I like hearing that first for I made a deal with myself a long time ago that I wouldn't stop for the first eight minutes because in the first eight minutes you hear everything that your mind can put up there to make you stop. Whoa. You're like my feet hurt. My ankles hurt. My knees hurt. You can't breathe. You know, like this sucks. It's too hot outside. Your mouth is dry. Like you, it's phenomenal how many things that your mind comes up with to wow. get you to stop. Wow. And then at eight minutes, it's just it's given up because it's you're like no. You wow. Know? And then at eight minutes, you stop being tired and you stop like giving a shit that you're running. You know, you just when, we, like, when we had to do like running tests or running mm-hmm. exams or just running you know, in college and in high school, mm-hmm. um, you know, for practice and training purposes, uh, that's always what happened. Like at first, and it's unanimous too. It's not just, it wasn't just me. It was like everyone. Like at first, you, as yeah. soon as you start, you're just everyone unanimously is like, fuck. Yeah. God damn. Like we got to run a 5k. We got to run like two miles. Mo- really? Right. 
Like, this is going to suck. Yeah. And yeah, after like you say eight minutes, it always just kind of felt like, yeah, I guess like five, ten. After, after you, you know, after you get past that hump, it's just like, whatever, this is how it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, get used to it, body, you know? And it, it, that never goes away. That happens every time I run, you know? Wow. And the only thing that allows me to run longer now is long distance runs. Because, hmm. like, a long distance run puts all of the run in perspective. So it used to be, I used to do like three miles and be like, I did three miles. Holy shit. That is amazing. You know? Mm. And now I'll, I'll get to like a seventh mile and be like, Oh, that's great. You know, what? like I'll, I'll head home now. That's it's crazy. Like, th- like my, like three miles home at the seven mile mark. And that's I'll just crazy. be like, Oh, three miles is nothing. I'll just go home now, you know, because it's, it scales. Yeah. So, that's insane. I had no idea you ran so much. I'm crazy. I'm a crazy person. So I have to. Wow. Like I have, I, I have to. And it's like a meditation too. I well, I mean, look at Forrest Gump, you know, <laughs> I'm serious. He had, the dude had a traumatic it's experience. I've been, it's not the first time I've been compared, compared to, Forrest to Forrest Gump. Gump. Yeah. yeah. Me neither. Honestly, <laughs> I've been compared to, well, I've been compared to Jenny a lot more. Really? Uh, <laughs> my lifestyle, I think was much more like hers for a little while. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean like, you know, he had a traumatic event happen and he just felt like running. Yeah. <laughs> it happens. It happens. Yeah. Um, so, uh, are you, what are you working on besides like the comedy? Are you doing, are you writing anything? Or are you? Well, yeah, I, uh, I am. And, and you know, how I mentioned I was, I was definitely spoiled back East doing comedy and you move out to LA and it's like, <laughs> as a comic, it is so hard to get paid for shows out here, you know, unless you're on the road, unless you're doing like weekend hosting gigs mm-hmm. at, at, at any one of the improvs in Southern California, mm-hmm. like it's impossible to get paid out here. I made so much more money back East, um, doing comedy. Like I was actually able there were a couple years there, uh, consecutively where I was able to total com- like exclusively support myself or support myself exclusively with com- through comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is just not the reality out here. So it's like this, weird situation where i move out here and as a comic i'm like man i need to start acting because i need to like pay my rent you know it's like so much easier to make a living as an actor out here so um i started acting after about a year and a half i'm not one of those comics that wanted to do that you know like Mm -hmm. a lot of comedians well a lot of actors out here you know get into stand-up because they think it'll expedite you know their their career facilitate them getting on a sitcom or something like I've that and that, the, tr- yeah. the the truth is some actors aren't the worst comics you know some actors pay comics to write you know a solid whatever 10 minute set for them and sometimes it's not that bad mm-hmm. um but you know also some some comics though are really good actors really amazing actors and uh i i wound up getting into acting because um you know i'm i'm a young I'm a girl. I'm in my twenties and, uh, I guess I have a good look and people kept telling me you should really be acting. And after about a year and a half of being out here, I finally kind of conceded and, uh, decided to start actively pursuing it. And that's actually worked out really well. You know, I got a, I got, I booked a lead, the lead role in an indie feature, which I don't know is going to get made. Mm -hmm. Um, we were set to shoot like now, like this month, but, um, we're a little, uh, it's getting a little delayed. I don't know what the what the deal is with the funding, but I know it kind of fell short. Um, 
you know, from what they wanted their budget, what they wanted the budget to be. But, you know, I've been doing a lot of web series and a lot of shorts, most of which are comedic. So it's not that like foreign to me, but mm-hmm. some of them are totally straight up dramatic. And um, I'm in a, I work with an awesome acting coach. His name is Gregory Berger Sobeck. And he, I haven't worked with him all spring because he's been at Yale teaching. Cool. So, um, yeah, he's, uh, he got his master's from there and um, has been an instructor for the last 20 some years and Yale had been begging him to come back and teach for, you know, the last couple of years. And he finally gave in and was there all semester. So now he's back and yeah, it's crazy. I might actually be a better actor than I am a comedian. Why do you say that? Like what leads you to believe that? Um, just validation from someone like him and, and, and just the fact that I actually get roles and book roles and I've never gone on audition and not gotten it. I mean, granted, I've really? only I've only really? gone on a handful of auditions, but I've got I've booked everything I've ever gone out and read for. That's really fantastic. I mean, I mean, I've only really I really only started actively trying to go to auditions and try to land roles for the last I don't know four months. Yeah. Since the beginning of the year. Yeah. Uh, so now I'm just, but that was in you know that was that that resulted from pursuing it in very like lackadaisical kind of haphazard way, you know, really just kind of experience in an experimental way. But, um, now I'm at this point where I have like every reason and, you know, every incentive to pursue it with, with a lot of, with gusto, I guess is how I want to say it. And, um, yeah, it's pilot season's over in LA and we're going into summer now. So it would be, I kind of missed that boat a little bit. Um, but, it's a, it's a good time to start getting out there. I'm trying to get an agent. Mm-hmm. I really like acting. It's it's And I actually really like theater because I'm used to a live audience and I'm used to being on stage and having that immediate gratification of a live audience in front of me. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm going to try to do some plays too. I don't need to be a movie star. I don't need to be on TV. But, um, yeah, I, I, I love it. I really enjoy it. It's mm-hmm. exhilarating. I get more excited to do a scene. Just I get just as excited to do a scene as I do to get up on stage and tell jokes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's great. It scares the hell out of me. Really? Acting? Yeah. yeah. Like I did it in high school a little and stuff. And but it's uh my parents are both actors. Oh really? Yeah. They were both actors in New York and I grew up in New York before we moved to DC. Right. Um and yeah, I, the whole thing just scares the hell out of me. I don't like being up in front of people. <sighs> well, you asked me I too. I used to, I used to for some reason. Like when I was younger, I used to, and huh. I used to like not care. And I think like a bigger audience is less. I'm less scared of a big audience than a small audience. Right. Same as a comic. Is, same. Which is weird, but that yeah. seems pretty common. Yeah. Common, but like, um, I don't. I I don't like feeling that fear, like I that fear you get before you go on stage like i don't like that so i just i get i get i don't get nervous anymore i just get really excited yeah i literally feel like i took a hit off a crack pipe really right before i go up on stage and then once i go up there it just totally i'm on autopilot and i'm almost like not conscious of what i'm doing i'm just doing things like out of habit right just yeah it's it's total autopilot and then when i get off stage i kind of crash a little bit Mm -hmm. um but I had stage fright in high school, so I was like yeah. the opposite of you. Yeah. I, as a little kid, I loved having an audience and I loved being like the center of attention around like a party of adults and kind of entertaining. I loved sure, entertaining, yeah. but <laughs> in high school, I, uh, I had total stage fright. I never did any drama or theater. Um, but you also asked me if I was writing anything, and I, I've I, I've been writing a uh, 
a web series, but I wanted to know if you've been writing anything. I haven't been writing anything. No. Really? No. Yeah. Um, I've always wanted to write something, but I've never, you know, mm. I've never done it. I don't, I haven't had the, it's daunting to me to think about like sitting down every day and like writing. Oh yeah. You know? And I think I, c- I think I could do it, but I, I get really weird. I get really, you know, I get into this weird like autistic space with writing <laughs> where I, it, it'll take me like a couple days to uh, organize my thoughts and right. then I'll sit down and I'll write and it'll go exactly the way that I thought it would for like three pages. Right. And then it goes off the deep end into some weird, like it doesn't make sense anymore. Right. Um, and so I think it's something that I would have to do like the running where you just sit down and you do it every day Yeah. to get to a place That's a couple months I, from now. I mean, now I'm, I'm seeing a writer you oh, know, yeah. who's in, who's a screenwriter. Mm. So has a mul- you know multiple projects going on simultaneously, um, some for TV, some are exposés, uh-huh. some are you know screenplays, fiction, whatever. Um, and it is it's literally constant writing. When you're a professional writer, you're getting paid to write. Like that's what it is. It's right. You're writing every day. And How you're does writing. she do it? What's her process? I mean, I just I, I'll just be hanging out with her or I'll walk in, I'll go to her house and meet up, meet up with her. And she's just writing. She's, she's just writing always something. Doing it. Yeah. She's always writing something. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's like if, if you're, if you're a doctor, you're like always fixing people, you right. know, or you're always in surgery. Like when you go to or you're always meeting with patients, whatever. Like it's the same when you're writing, you're, when you're a writer, you're always writing. Right. Um, it's what you do every day. Yeah. You know, it's your, it's your craft. So, and like, you know, I've, um, I've been given some insight into her projects. And so I'd say that, you know, at at this point in time or at any given time, she's probably involved in mm, three or four, you know, five. If you throw in some of the nonfiction work that she's asked to do that people, you know, seek her out to, to do for them. Um, you know, a lot of that stuff, falls on the back burner but then i've also you know begin to realize with with a lot of writers like they they keep everything they've ever written Mm -hmm. uh just like an artist you know just like someone who draws portraits or does any kind of painting like you know they keep they keep their work um even if it's stuff that's kind of fallen you know put been put on the back burner or kind of like you know they just they've just stopped working on and, and they keep it and then at some point in time um after a while they they go back uh I know at least for her, you know, she goes back and looks at maybe some of the stuff that she's written over the last few years. And, um, in a lot of cases gives it to someone else to see if any of it's any good and she should pick up writing any of it again, because you know, there, yeah. there's definitely like a second, like a second or a third party perspective that I, I think is required for a lot of artists. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I know like for me, like, there is some stuff I write in the way of jokes that like, I'm like, that is shit. I can't do anything with that. Mm-hmm. And then another comic will be looking through my joke book or even just a friend or whoever and be like, what is this one? And I'll tell them like, there's something there. You need to work with that. I'm like, really? I wrote that like three years ago and yeah. I couldn't make it work. It's like, well, three years has gone by bitch. You know, maybe yeah. you can make it work now. I'm sorry. I'm cursing. Am I allowed to curse on this you podcast? Do whatever you want. All right. I shit, piss, fuck, damn bitch. Okay. Just to get it out. <laughs> Just, just wanted to get it out there. I mean, it's funny, like the yeah. creative. It's so funny how the creative mind works, you know. So I love hearing about that stuff mm. um, because we're our own worst critics. 
Absolutely. And you can look at the stuff that you've done and you go through that process. Even if you think something's good, you put it down for like a half an hour and come back to it and read it and it's not good anymore. Right. You know? Totally. Yeah. Totally. And, and you know, I'll say as a, as a comedian and being out here for like two and a half years, I feel like 80%, maybe not that quite that much at this point. I feel like 70, between 60 and 70% of what I've written in the way of material since I've been out here has been all rewrites. I mean, I, I probably, I feel like I've only written a total of like six, maybe, yeah, like six new minutes of brand new material that I've been only working with the last like two years, honestly. And then everything else in my set has been rewrites of material I was actively using and have been using like the entire time I've been, been a comic. And then mm-hmm. a lot of shit I wrote the first couple years when I started that I was never able to use or never able to make work until all of a sudden I was seven years later. Mm-hmm. So a lot of rewrites, a lot of reworking material um, and organizing it, a lot of reorganizing it. That's cr- That's crazy. I wrote some new material last night. I, See, my, I'm trying to write clean stuff. You know, I'm trying to write clean material. So, and also I call, I refer to it. I feel like I'm about to give up one of my trade secrets, but I just refer to it as the divine comedy. You know, like some comics are observational, um, which is cool. That in a way is totally, that's the divine comedy. You're observing mm-hmm. what's going on around you, that the universe is simply placed in front of you or the divine has just simply ordained to be. It's just, you know, mm-hmm. it's just what exists around you is what you're observing and therefore, you know, talking about. Um, I consider that the quote unquote divine comedy. The divine comedy for me is I'm not really an observational ca- comic, but I talk a lot about my life. What are the forces that work in my life? What are the things about my life that I have intimate experience and knowledge of? Like me, for me, it's being adopted, mm-hmm. you know, being gay, having older parents. Like that's the divine comedy. That's the, that's the shit that I have no control over. Mm-hmm. That's the shit that just has been planned in my life. That's been placed in my life that I had no, it's just what I know, right, you know? Right. Um, and, uh, you know, being sober obviously is part of my, divine comedy that's something i have intimate knowledge of so i've been trying to work on you know sobriety material and and i you know it's true though like i've never woken up and like regretted being sober the Mm -hmm. night before you know i've never Mm -hmm. woken up and been like oh man i got so sober last night you know or like (laughs) like oh dude like i remember everything you know like it's never so i'm trying to write about that i'm trying to write more material about um i kind of just bumped into the mic uh Sorry if that sounds weird, but sounded weird. But uh, I'm trying to write more material about being adopted. Uh-huh. You know, like um, my parents were in their 50s. I didn't know you were adopted. Yeah, I'm adopted. Yeah. That's why I have no idea who my father is. That's why I'm very adamant that I'm not white. That's really, why I'm. That's really. why I'm positive that I'm like at least my my father's got to be mixed or something. But um, just you know, it's the hair, man. It's the hair, and people people <laughs> love people love to speculate. They're like, oh, you're probably just Jewish or. You know, my, my grandmother's German-Irish. She has hair like that. Like, yeah. okay, well, you know, I get whatever. I get really dark. I get really dark in the summer. But um, You could probably spit into a test tube and have somebody tell you exactly what there you is, are. There is a test. It's called 20. It's by this company, 23 and Me. And it's like me, yeah. 99 bucks. And yeah. they give you, a, they send you a saliva swab. Yeah. Yeah, I got to do that, man. I got to do that this summer. I'll get back to you. Yeah. When I get the results, I'll let you know. It. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but let's you know do what? it together. Let me know when you're doing it. I'll get one. Hell yeah. Yeah. 
I thought they mailed it to you, but if it's someplace you can go to. No, no, they mail it to you. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'll let you know. Yeah. Um, but, you know, my, my parents were, like, in their 50s mm-hmm. when they adopted me. And I was like, you know, like, they had a midlife crisis. And they were like, let's have a baby. Like, we're like, like we need a kid, huh? What were you thinking? You know, most people, <laughs> ju- most people just get a boat, you know, <laughs> like, or a brand new car. Like, they, what, what kind of midlife crisis is a, that? I have a friend who has some really old parents, and he, um... Not that 50 is really old, but um, he kind of in a similar situation. And he's one of like the smartest, most well-adjusted people I know. Wow. You know, because the parents had just, they were economically stable and wow. had been through the, uh, not your experience? I mean, not nah, I, I, <laughs> I, I didn't, well, not my individual experience. Uh-huh. I, I certainly didn't grow up privileged, but I, you know, nice household. Mm-hmm middle class my brother and i my brother is not adopted by the mm-hmm. way and that's what's interesting is that you know i'm adopted mm. i totally grew up to be like alcoholic drug addict gay comedian but my brother who's not adopted went down a, a way darker road um, really oh yeah he became a republican so <laughs> uh you baited me i did that, that was, was a good, good. setup that good. that's the first time that i've said really that, that joke out loud yeah that was really good um <laughs> Yeah, no, he, he he and he works in finance. So that's what I was gonna. <laughs> he does. He works. He, he works for a bit. So yeah, I mean, way. I was gonna way say the opposite road. of you would probably be like in every a Wall way. Street. He, type. Oh, totally. Yeah, totally. Heterosexual, white picket fence, golden retriever, um, wife, son. Yeah. Nice car. You know. But, I I did. That's boring to me. I'd be bored as hell. Yeah. I'd be bored. Uh, I there's like um, oh god, there was a story. It's like these guys in New York. And they're like a band. They're like a quartet or something. They play on the streets. Mm-hmm. It's like a violinist and a cellist and a bass player and whatever. And they're like always out there. Like no matter what the weather is, no matter what the time of day is, and they're just out there playing their instruments, you know. And they and they tour and they travel and they just play music. They're musicians and they're like looking through a window of like a bar or a restaurant one night and it's Christmas and it's a very Norman Rock Rockwell-esque kind of scene going on with like family and traditional kind of stuff. And, and the, the one guy, the one musician musician looks at the other one and he's like, I don't know how they do that. I could never do that. Mm-hmm. You know? So it's true. I mean, some people just, some people just, can't like don't want have no desire whatsoever to live a conventional traditional life and then some people can't fathom not having that like why would you want to go to la you don't why would you why wouldn't you want to go to college why would you drop out why would you want to be a comedian why would you want to be poor why would you want to be like you know starving why would you want to take that risk you know to be an artist and there's a part of me that just wants to turn around in a very loving and compassionate way and be like you're an artist too yeah just a completely different kind. You know, I think we're all artists. I, I think yeah. you can totally be in a nine to five job and be an artist. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that, that people that wind up being, you know, CEOs and, and working in a leadership capacity at, um, at a, at an, at an office like that, the amount of requ- the, the kind of creativity that that requires, like, you know, but put in a nine to five context, come on. Yeah. Of course you're, course you're operating under some sort of creative artistic intelligence you have to be yeah in some capacity a mechanic 
Or oh, yeah, Mechan- mechanics are definitely artists. A mechanic, a fucking, you know, construction worker, a... Yeah. A cre- creation should not be limited to, like, pretty pretty paints on splashed right. on a wall. Right. Yeah, like, creation is anything. The Building a bomb, you know, the atomic bomb, you know, like, the amount of... Cre- like the, the creative process of, like, a theoretical physicist, you know? We're all creating things. Yeah. You yeah. know, and that same technology that could be used to annihilate tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people could also be the same create creativity that could give way to like clean energy that's sustainable and everlasting. Right. That could, you know, transform the world as we know it. So, you know, I, I try not to judge other people's creative, uh, creative outlets and outputs. I try not to have, I hate how a lot of artists have this really kind of, um, you know, pretentious judgment and, and perception of, of their own creativity. You know, they have a tendency to put theirs above, you know, a doctor or a lawyer and be like, well, that's, that's not art. Oh, like I'm an artist. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm an artist. Yes. But I'm an artist. What exactly does that For, mean? It's fun, When you were talking, it's funny that like uh, people who see, you know, like if you're, if you're doing comedy or something like that and they're, Oh, how could you go be an artist? I can't, I don't. I don't know how you right could now. work in a nine to five job. So I'm like, my hat's off to well, you. Well, that's a, yeah. Th- I think the, the thought the thought process might be like the thing in and of itself. Because for like for me, I didn't have any choice. Like I lived in New York for a couple of years. I live and then I moved out to LA, and I'm living in LA doing my thing. And I never had any choice in the matter. You know, like mm-hmm. I made those choices along the way, but like. There was no, there was no option in my mind. There was just, oh, this thing is what you do next. Mm-hmm. This is what you do next. This is what you do next. And I was just kind of like, moving. Yeah. You know, and it didn't. I never thought, I never thought it through like that. Like, oh, maybe moving to New York is risky, and I shouldn't, I shouldn't do this. Or, oh, maybe like uprooting from New York and moving to LA is risky. Maybe I should, just like fold, go back to. Gaithersburg, Maryland, and right, you know, have a family or so. You know, I never that never crossed my mind. It was just like, and I feel like that stuff. Of all, I don't, I don't judge that stuff. You know, if I'm supposed to have like a house with a golden retriever and a wife and kids right. and a nice car, I feel like that will just reveal itself through the process of whatever I've been doing. You know, and, and you know, to bring it if back, that's what it's meant to be absolutely, and to like circle it back to Baltimore. I guess I want to thank that god awful racist fucking place for being as terrible as it is because i was so miserable and had such an intense aversion to Mm. everyone and everything there and the whole way of thinking and the ignorance was so intolerable to me that thank god you know for it because i couldn't stay there and i was like Mm. i gotta get the fuck out of here yeah i gotta go to la i knew i didn't want to go to new york i mean new york is the i grew up with the notion and you know in my own experiences and working a lot in new york just believing that New York really is the greatest city in the world, but mm-hmm. I knew I didn't want to live there, you mm-hmm. know, but I had to get out. Yeah. I had to get out of Baltimore. Um, and, and it, I'm not like, I'm not happy that it's this ignorant. I really do believe it's an ignorant racist place. And I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. If you're from Baltimore and you're like that fucking bitch, like fuck her, like whatever. I don't care, you know, because it's, it, it's an awful place. But I'm just glad I got to see it. 
I thought that like the longer I lived in LA, mm. I thought my aversion for Baltimore would dissipate the longer I was out here. Mm. It's actually grown because mm. I being so far away and being in this, you know, this place, this land of a heightened spiritual intellect and a, you know, a heightened creative intellect. I realized just how like backwards and um, really just kind of stagnant and like remedial other mm. parts of the country are. And uh, <laughs> wow, okay. that's really, okay. really pretentious. Yeah. Um, but I'd rather not have my head up my ass and be aware of how lucky I am to yeah. live in the place I Absolutely. live. You know, it's a city thing, too. I think I think that's why uh, things divide politically the way that they divide, because it's it's you know, you can't be exposed to the things that you're exposed to here without sharing the ideas that you share with people. And, you know. It's just a great place. I've worked on a horse and cattle ranch in Arizona, though. Yeah? Hell yeah, man. <laughs> I'm not... I mean, Baltimore's a city. You know, it's not like a urban thing against um, a non-urban thing. I mean, I, I love rural communities. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, man, and that working on that ranch, I had to, like, totally not be gay and not be liberal and uh, just pretend that, yeah... Obama sucked. <laughs> I just don't understand the. I don't understand the re the restrictions of the other side, you know. I don't understand a side that. Like, why do you? Why does? Why do some people have problems with that? With those things, I have no you know? idea. I have no idea. Like, I, I don't understand that there's one side that's like, oh, you can't be a certain way, or you can't look a certain way, or you can't. You, you don't fit the mold or I have your thoughts don't work with our thoughts I have because I think that no I idea. feel like, I mean the definition of liberalism is being accepted of like in all ways, you all know? inclusive. Yeah. Right. So I don't get it. I don't know. I, so I don't get, I don't get like Christians that like, don't like that have like, realized that there are other, that, that care that people are other religions. And but really in, in, in other aspects of their daily life practice no Christian principles whatsoever. Right. right. Yeah, the the hypocrisy and this is kinda of what we were talking about at Shabbat last night. I have no idea. None of us could come up with an answer to fundamentalist, you know, uh fundamentalist religion, fundamental mentalities. Yeah. Uh, the only the only thing I can come up with is fear. It's but fear. then but then it comes down to well, why are some people so fucking afraid and other people's people aren't? Yeah. You know, I grew up in the same family, um, you know, completely different genetics, different biology, but the same environment, same conditioning as my brother. He's super conservative and Republican and, um, you know, still lives in Baltimore and is very comfortable there and never wants to leave. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, I, my, my family totally maintains anonymity because of my last name powers like i go by alex powers but that's not my real last name so i feel like mm. i can talk about my brother very um like intimately without anyone knowing who he is but yeah i mean like he's totally he's totally struggled with his own racism and um homophobia and just other structures of oppression it's like why why we had yeah. the same upbringing yeah why is why is you know why is he plagued with the that kind of fear if we want to, you know, speculate that it's fear at the root of it. Why is he plagued with that kind of insecurity um, yeah. about other people? And I'm not. Yeah. Joseph Campbell says that there are two types of people. 
They're the people that like when before the hero starts his journey, there's the community and the community promises you happiness. And they say, if you leave the community, we can't promise you happiness. We promise that whatever your journey will be will be interesting, but it won't. We can't promise happiness. If you stay here and you don't go on the journey, we can promise happiness, which is basically the community. Wow. And so the hero's journey begins with leaving the community and like going on the adventure. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think about that and I think about being being on my path and being where I'm at and constantly questioning happiness. What is happiness? Am I happy? Does happiness come from the people I'm around or the things I have or like what is what is happiness or is it that community, you know, Mm -hmm. and it always you can look up. His, his like lectures are on YouTube and that's the whole first first lecture is on what I'm talking about now but um, it's striking how Republican versus Democrat or conservative versus liberal the, the rich whole versus poor me- yeah, really the whole methodology is where yeah. it's like if you stay home you know and, and it's it's fear-based it's a fear-based mentality that if you leave the community bad things will happen. And I think I don't I, the only thing I can come up with is that people have all sorts of different experiences. Right. And mm-hmm. when you're little, smaller experiences have larger impacts. Mm-hmm. So there might be a period of time where we're young when choices that we've made, like affect us psychologically for the rest of our lives, where you might have gone outside of your comfort zone mm-hmm. and the world slapped you for it. Mm-hmm. You know, and so you draw back into your comfort zone and then it might take you a couple of years to be comfortable with leaving your comfort zone again. And then you get slapped again and you mm-hmm. run back to your comfort zone. And if that happens like three times by the time you're 15, like there's a good chance that you're like never going to leave your hometown. Right. You know, but some people leave that comfort zone and like get away with it. And they're like, oh, I got away with that. You yeah. know, that was good. I got rewarded, you know, yeah. and if if your first experience is a reward instead of a consequence, then you might just, even if you face consequences in the future, right. you know that that reward is a possibility. Right. You know, so you keep reaching out for the reward and reaching out for the, re- for the reward. very, very interesting. And it, you know, it makes me think of my sister-in-law, who's, you know, a lovely person um, and, ex- you know, far more open-minded. And I've always felt very lucky and relieved that my brother, you know, found someone that was uh, a little bit more liberal, but nevertheless, she comes from a very wealthy family. She comes from some money and, um, she went to a good school that allowed her to get a job in New York, Mm -hmm. you know, working for a rather well-known, you know, large publishing house, uh, in New York city. And she lived in like Chelsea or like the village or something for a couple years and was, and then, you know, started dating my brother while she was there. And he was living in Delaware working for a financial institution Mm -hmm. and she was living in New York city. And I asked her one day, I was like, why did you guys ever come back to Baltimore? Both of you were not here. You were, you know, out of college, you were both working out of state. Mm -hmm. And you were in New York. I mean, I know it's like, in a, you know, the cost of living is outrageous, but you guys are both successful young professionals. You know, you have, I didn't say this to her, but, you know, in my mind, I'm like, she has family money. It's, it's not, it wasn't completely unfeasible for them to create a life mm-hmm. in a huge cultural mecca like New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and she just said, and, you know, b- because of her upbringing, because of coming from, you know, some wealth, 
she's extremely worldly and well-traveled, well-educated, well-read. And, you know, she's always had the opportunity growing up to go on, you know, go abroad every year. My brother and I didn't have that luxury. Our parents didn't have that kind of money. I've only been out of the country once. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I couldn't understand. It's like, it looks like you got all, you know, the formula is there. It looks like you got all the, the ducks in a row to be able to have a life outside of Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Why did you ever come back? You know, and she simply said, it's a nice place to raise a family. And in my mind, I was like, people grow up and are raised in New York all the time. Mm-hmm. Hey, you know, yeah. Uh, the girl I'm seeing is a, you know, native group born and raised in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I was born and raised in Manhattan. There you go. We moved out uh, when I was like eight. Yeah, there you go. Um, it's funny, too. I think about raising kids in L.A., and I get really, really fearful. Really? Yeah. L.A. proper, like the school district and like yeah. the schools, and it's so funny to hear, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> I've been like uh, flying flying by wire for so long that it's so funny to hear myself talk about, you know, possibly, possibly having kids or possibly like worrying about schools. Like, right. Poof, yeah. But um yeah, thinking about uh sending kids to public schools in LA right. like r- really scares me. And in Maryland, I mean, you say you can say all sorts of things about Maryland, but like the schools that I had in Maryland were, are great. were very good. Very good schools. Are great. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean uh, the 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 schools in the city are are the public schools in the city are in horrible, the city but are horrible, but in like, the county are are In Montgomery great. County, it was like yeah. the fifth or sixth like richest county in the country yeah. and like they had great schools and like really really a good education. And so I think about that stuff and mm-hmm. it makes me want to leave LA to go somewhere where, you know, a kid can ride a bike outside. I'm or... glad you, I'm glad you, you totally, I mean, I grew up on a dead end street, so I totally relate, you mm-hmm. know, like just having such a comfortable suburban upbringing, but I'm glad you brought up the, the educational aspect, but that's one of the, the really weird things I've never understood about Baltimore because I'm saying all these horrible things about it. I'm being mm-hmm. really rather harsh and critical of my, my hometown. I'm sure if anyone from Baltimore heard me talk about it, they'd be like that fucking asshole yeah. moving to LA. Talk, <laughs> oh, you're better than us. You're better than us. And it's like, well, yeah, I am. Um, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But it, it, that's one of the things that has baffled me about Baltimore because it has such fine you know, reputable at, you know, educational institutions. Johns Hopkins is there. Yeah. University of Maryland has always been in the top 15 of public universe, like yeah. state universities in the country. Um, there are great schools. Great in schools. Great and schools then, in Baltimore. Absolutely. Yeah. And private schools. I mean, the, the pri- I mean, granted, they're exclusive and, you know, you have to be able to pay tuition. But, you know, s- my parents were able to sacrifice and afford to send me and my brother to, to Catholic schools there. And the, the private and Catholic schools in Baltimore County are some of the best on the East coast. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I get it. I mean, but it, I get why they moved, why they moved out of New York and wh- my parents went through the same thing. I mean, when I got to eight, I got to eight and my sister got to, to, uh, how old was she at the time? I guess she was three cause she's five years younger than me. And she, and they were like, we have to go somewhere where we can, like, have a, like, quote-unquote family life, yeah. you know? New York's not cutting it. And so, like, I grew up in museums. I grew up, like, seeing shows. I grew yeah. up, like, I they sent me to private school. Um, and I had a great experience. So it's so funny that I look back on that experience and I'm like, I don't want that for my kids. Because I would love to have that for my kids. I would love to have them be that exposed to 
culture and stuff. Right. I mean, it's so expensive. So expensive. I guess it comes down to like financial fear too, you know? Yeah. Of like being able to send them to a good school and having them have, you know, there's something about, there's something about having been from New York at the beginning and then moving to the suburbs that made me always want to go back. Huh. So it was kind of like there was this trigger that was always in my psyche that was going to cause me always to leave, you know, because I always regretted not growing up the rest of the time in mm-hmm. New York and I always wanted to get back. And so I went back after, you know, right. when I was old enough, I went back. Right. And that kind of kicked everything off. So, yeah. Um, I mean, you're right there. I, I have enough friends that are uh, parents and have kids uh, out here in LA and it, it really, they've put into perspective to me, like why people move to Beverly Hills mm-hmm. It's because, you know, to send your kid to Beverly Hills high, it's like one of the only decent public schools you can send your kid to. It's like worth it. Like think about what you're going to be paying to live in Beverly Hills on a mm-hmm. house. You know, it's like basically equal to what you'd otherwise pay in tuition to send them to a decent private school. And, and, you know, understanding why people live in places like Sherman Oaks and mm-hmm. Pasadena and these more like suburban, you know, areas that surround Los Angeles. Like mm-hmm. I get it. Sounds terrible. Yeah. Sounds absolutely horrible. I mean, I guess it's hi Fox. Dog, I love your dog. Um, yeah, it's kind of thing where you definitely got to be like fall into a certain socioeconomic bracket to send your to to expose your kid to a decent education, Mm -hmm. you know, here. Yeah, stuff, stuff, stuff. Well, we went like way over an hour. We're like, I felt like that an hour and a half deep. Do you edit this? Do you go back? No, No, I just just put it up there. It's gonna be, I am so glad that. Baltimore's going to raise up against you. I'm, I mean, they're already rioting, you know. But they're going to send people out. <laughs> they're going <laughs> to. No, no, they can't. No, they won't. They won't. No one will want to go. Yeah. No one will want to go. They'll just, you know, they'll just start a, a Facebook page. Um, no, I'm so, I was just about to say, I'm so glad I'm not f- successful and famous. And I'm so glad you aren't either because <laughs> I can't, <laughs> I can't like be say I can't be shit talking Baltimore for yeah. like, after a certain point in time. Well, you know, people will look back on this in like a decade <laughs> and it's really going to be controversial for you. Hopefully by then I'll like be, <laughs> you know, I'll have an Academy Award and in my acceptance speech, I'll just be like, I'm just a, I'm just a comic from Baltimore. And, you a know? Lo- and a lot of people don't know this, but like by 2025, like Baltimore just doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> it's just, it's just co- like swallowed gone. by DC kind <laughs> of completely gone. Philadelphia and DC yeah. just kind of like ate it up. That's where like the hovering like Octo city is. Yeah. They say that every, you know, writer has an intimate relationship with where they're from and it doesn't necessarily mean it's a good relationship. But the bottom line, the important thing is that there's a relationship there. And, um, you know, Baltimore is the, like I said, Baltimore is the reason I came out to L.A. Mm-hmm. L.A. is the reason I met you. And uh, so for that, I'm grateful and I'm really glad you had me on today. Thank you so much for joining us. Like, this was uh, this was good. Did you like this? Yeah, it was fun. I mean, it, I would love to do it again sometime and maybe bring some notes to me so we can talk about like pop culture. I want to talk movies with you next time. Let's do it. Cinema. Let's do it. Cool. Well, thanks for coming. Thanks so much, Patrick. And thanks for listening, everybody.